One of the more famously memorized passages or verses in Scripture is Micah. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And I'm going to put on the screen behind me. If you don't know this verse or have never seen this verse, this is a good memory verse. Uh, if you want a good one to lock and load in your memory, it's a good one. Micah 6, 8. Let's read it. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I've always thought that verse was beautiful and odd. Uh, we don't usually, in English, say do justice. That's kind of like an odd phrasing of it. And so I, I've been asking myself, what does it mean to do justice? Biblical justice has two prongs to it. On the one side is our classic definition of justice, which is making sure that the wrongdoer gets a punishment worthy of the crime. Certainly, that is part of the biblical definition of justice. But biblical justice also has this other prong to it. It's this side that says justice is about giving people their rights. Justice is about participating in restoring to the weak, the vulnerable, and the needy that which they are deprived of to make sure that they have enough to survive. When it comes to this verse, that word, justice, is referring to both of them, both sides of the biblical concept of justice. To give you an idea of how this plays out in the Old Testament, there were tons and tons of laws all through the Old Testament that always revealed God's heart for justice, both sides of this justice. To give you a sense of a few of them, one of them you may have heard of before was called the Law of Gleanings. This particular law comes up a lot in the study of the book of Ruth in the Bible. In the Law of Gleanings, if you owned a field in the Old Testament, God said, when you go to harvest your field and bring in your crops, leave the edges of the field unharvested. Don't take those crops in. Rather, leave them in place. Why? So that the poor and the vulnerable among you can go among the margins of your field and gather food for themselves so that they will not starve. See, this law reveals God's heart, that, that God's heart is about making sure that in terms of God's kingdom, there is no one who goes without. That's why in the New Testament, when the, new, the, the church challenges us that we should have no poor among us, no needy among us, it's because God's people are a margin people. We're, we're always creating margin in our life so that we can take care of the vulnerable and the needy among us. Another one of these laws in the Old Testament is... Uh, found in Deuteronomy 15, under the, a, a series of laws known as the laws of releasing. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 2. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, uh, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Now, this is a powerful law in the Old Testament. This is a public policy among God's people that makes sure that generational poverty does not exist. This makes sure that no particular family falls into cyclical generational injustice and generational poverty, but has a chance to reset themselves, and they don't have to live for generations in the mistakes they made in the past. God has a heart for the needy among us. All through Scripture, we see that God's justice bends towards the poor, the weak, the needy, and the vulnerable in society. 
This is a hallmark of the God of the Bible, and to put it bluntly, it's a hallmark of God's people throughout history. We, we are studying the book of Judges, and today as we get into chapter 9 of the book of Judges, this chapter is all about justice. We are about to read one of the most screwed up stories in all of the Bible. Judges chapter 9 is what happens when a people completely take their eyes off of God. In fact, in Judges chapter 9, it's the one chapter in all of the book of Judges where the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is not used once. You wouldn't see this reading the English, but it's not used once in this chapter. And I think that's because God's people had totally forgot God. They weren't just following other idols and a little bit of God on the side. They had completely forgot Him. And what we're about to read in this story is what happens to God's people when they go all the way forgetting God. The covenant name, the personal name of God had been forgotten. If you're new with us and you're joining into this series, we're studying through the book of Judges. And, and Judges, just quickly, is the story of God's people coming into the promised land. And while they were supposed to be a city on a hill, a, a people so in tune with God that the nations would see their love of God and their love for others with such beauty that they would desire to know God as a result. But the book of Judges is all about Israel's failure to do that and the problems that came as a result. So pick up with me, if you have your Bibles, page 208, Judges chapter 9. Let's get into the story of Abimelech. And there are ushers coming around. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Judges chapter 9, Abimelech's story, actually starts just a bit before in chapter 8. So I'm going to rewind us just a few verses. The man Abimelech was Gideon's son. Now, if you've been with us through this series, we've been studying the book of Judges so far, and Gideon, we've already studied his life. This was a man that started off very good. He was a hero in the Bible, did a lot of great things. God used him as a judge in Israel. But in the second half of his life, he fell to the common sin of pride. Pride and lust, to be honest with you. Look at what happens in, in Gideon's life. Chapter 8, verse 30 and 31. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his own concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now let's just get the picture. Gideon, in the later years of his life, gets full of pride and lust, takes for himself many wives. That's against God's law. In fact, he gets so full of pride and lust that he goes and gets himself a concubine on the side in Shechem. And he bears a son through that concubine in Shechem. That son's name would be Abimelech. Abimelech grows up to be one of 70, the one son that was not of a legitimate wife. This was a problem in Abimelech's life. But what we also see in Abimelech's life is an old principle that I've learned to be very true, that the sins of a father will be practiced in double by their children. Gideon practiced pride. The sins of the son will go much further as he takes pride on himself. Let's jump into chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel. Jerubbabel is Gideon's other name. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, <coughs> And said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, What's better for you, that all the seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember, I am your bone and your flesh. That's how he said that verse. Remember, I'm your bone and your flesh. What does he do? Abimelech goes to his hometown of Shechem, and he holds a political rally. And in this political rally, he says, Hey, Shechem, I'm from you. 
I'm one of your guys. What do you want? Seventy sons of Gideon over there ruling over you? Make me king. I'll be a great king. And the foolish Shechemites who had fallen out of relationship with God, who had forgotten the covenant name of God, they agree to this foolish plan. They go over to the local temple. They give Abimelech a little bit of cash and they say, all right, go do what you got to do. And here's his first move as their king. Verses 4 and 5. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, that's one of the false gods they were worshipping, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Verse 5. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubabel, was left, for he hid himself. Now, pause. Here's a man who just killed 70 of his family members. He did it on one stone. That's an interesting detail. You have to bring yourself into the story a bit and imagine this scene as worthless, reckless men bring one son after another onto the stone, 70 in all, only one escapes. This is a tremendous injustice. Now, just to kind of set the stage right for us as we continue through this story, two new things are happening in the book of Judges right now. Number one, up till this point, only foreign nations have had a king. This is the first for that was because God tries to take the name of king. Everyone else was a judge. And the reason for that was because God's people were supposed to only have God as their king. He was their king. They didn't want to submit to any earthly king, but here we have a man establishing himself as king. The second new thing we see in this story is that Gideon, I'm sorry, Abimelech, unlike the previous judges who had been told by God to step into the role of judge, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, God always elected them and said, you are my leader who I am going to use. Abimelech elects himself, taken right after his father. I'm going to be king, and I'll do whatever it takes to get there. Jotham, the youngest son, steps onto Mount Gerizim, which overlooks Shechem. Now, you've got to know, Shechem is a very important town in biblical history. It's where God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and said, I'll bless you to bless the nations. It's where Joshua then took all of God's people and lined them up in Shechem on Mount Gerizim, the Mount Ebal, and read the book of the law and said, if you follow God's law, here's all the blessings that will come to you. If you disobey God's law and act unjustly, here's all the curses that will come to you. Jotham then goes right up to that very place, a very historical moment for the people of Israel, and he goes up on the Mount Gerizim, and he shouts a prophecy over the people of Shechem, the one young surviving son. And in this prophecy, he essentially tells them that they have acted unjustly. And then listen to the end of what he says, verses 16 to 20, to get the point of the entire prophecy. Now, therefore, says Jotham, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king... And if you've dealt well with Gideon, with Jerubbabel and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you've risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. And let also, and let him rejoice in you. But if not, 
let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. All right, pause. What is Jotham saying? He's looking at Shechem. He's saying, if you have acted justly today, if what you have done, killing Gideon's sons and bringing Abimelech in, has been just, then rejoice. Here on this mountain, God said, if you act justly, you're going to get all the blessings of God. But if you have disobeyed God's commands and acted unjustly, then may all the curses of God fall upon you. Jotham then goes into hiding. And the next thing we read is in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Interesting little detail. Three years pass without any response to Jotham's prophecy that he just said on the mountain. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now pause. That's a fascinating little verse. God sends an evil spirit. It's almost like the author is pulling back the events of history. All the real world news that's happening politically with them. With they anointed uh, Abimelech to be the king and they killed the previous king's predecessors. It's almost like he's pulling back the curtains and giving us as readers a glimpse into spiritually what's actually happening behind the real world events that are going on in Shechem. All the people of God know, all the people in Shechem know, is that all of a sudden, Abimelech's political ranking is going through the, through the floor. They don't understand it. His scores are going way down. No one likes him anymore. They don't realize God sent a spirit of division between Abimelech and his people. Then one day, a new man moves into town. Verse 26, we meet this man named Gael, who's the son of Ebed. Gael's a lot like Abimelech. He moves into Shechem and he says, who's this Abimelech guy? Why are you guys letting him lead you? I'd be a much better leader over you than Abimelech would be. And he convinces the people of Shechem to follow him rather than following Abimelech. Jotham's curse is beginning to come to fruition. Abimelech catches word that his own people, the people that anointed him as king, are beginning to turn their back on him. And his ego and his pride just can't take it. He steps up and he goes to war against his own people. Now this is a tremendous injustice. Abimelech begins to go to war against his own people. And he kills as many of them as he can when he goes to battle against them. The following day, Abimelech is still in a rage. Abimelech kills Gael and all the people that had sided with him, all his own people. And he's still in a rage the following day. And when he wakes up in the morning, he sees civilians walking out of Shechem. Listen to what he does next, verses 43 and 44. After the rage the previous day, 43 reads this way, he took his people and divided them into three companies and set ambush in the fields. And he looked and he saw people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them, his own civilians. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. This is a picture of a man standing like a monster in the gates of his own city. He's so angry. He's so fueled by rage that his pride has been hit that he's now killing his own people. But that's not enough for him. All the remaining people now flee to a tower. It says a thousand men and women lock themselves up in a tower. And in verse 52, Abimelech comes to the tower and fights against it 
He says he drew near to the door of the tower and he burned it down with fire. It says a thousand men and women were killed in that tower as the tower came crashing down because of Abimelech's rage over his pride being hurt. This is a tremendous injustice. Remember God's laws. Abimelech, especially as the leader, was supposed to be caring for the needy, for the vulnerable. Here he locks them up in a tower, burns it to the ground, and a thousand people die in one day. And that's not enough. He's not done. The next day, Abimelech goes to the next town, and they catch wind that this maniacal man is on the loose and is killing people, and has just killed a thousand people in one tower. He goes to the next tower. He walks up, and the men and women of that town put themselves in another tower to try to defend themselves. Let me read the end of chapter 9 so we see how the end of this story goes. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes, and he captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all, <clears throat> all fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the tower to burn it with fire. Hear that detail. He's going to do it again. He's bloodthirsty, and he wants it to happen again. And I hear how justice comes towards him. A certain woman picked up a millstone, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, and crushed his skull. Here's the picture. Abimelech is running towards the tower to light it on fire with all the people inside, and a woman at the top takes a heavy millstone, throws it over the side, and it just so happens to land on Abimelech's head and crushes his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young men thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Here's the lesson. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed the men of his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. What do we make of a story like this? You know, I think for a lot of people, we, we turn to pages in the Bible that read like this, and we scratch our heads and have no idea what to do with it. For some people, it might even turn them away from the Bible, as they see the violence and the destruction that's coming out of the very pages that are supposed to give us life. This Bible is history, and it's recording for us actual events. And inside of this passage, God is teaching us a lesson about justice. He's teaching us about justice and injustice and how that works in the economy of God. We see this because central to the entire story is Jotham's prophecy, where he gets up on the mountain and he says, look, if you have acted injustice, then may the blessings of God come upon you. But if you have acted unjustly, may the cursings of God come upon you because God's people ought to be about justice. One of the very first things we learn from this story is that God will always have justice in the end. At the end of this story, God gets justice. Now, first and foremost, that means for us as followers of Christ, that we look forward to a day, a very clear and coming day, 
When Jesus will return and restore all things to the way they ought to be. And there will be a just hearing for every injustice that has happened on this earth since the beginning of time. From the moment when Cain shed Abel's blood to the streets of Chicago today, there will be an accounting before the Lord of hosts when he returns both as king and as judge. But we also learn from this story that as we wait for that day to come, God is getting justice through very normal means even today. Remember that moment where the author pulled back the curtains for us and allowed us to see behind the scenes what God was doing spiritually. Remember verse 22, it said, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. All the leaders of Shechem knew was that they were going about their day as every other day. They didn't realize that God was orchestrating events to bring about his justice. And this is an important lesson for us to learn today. So it is with us. God is working behind the scenes. Behind the news that we read, behind the events of our day, our time, the time that we live in, and the wars that we see, and the injustices that happen around us. His kingdom. Oftentimes we don't know it, but God is often even using sinful people outside of his kingdom, and yet working his spirit hand behind the scenes to orchestrate events to bring about justice. As followers of Christ, it's important that we're aware of this. As followers of Christ, this will make us read the news and think about life differently than we do. Well, we read the news differently than every other person on this world. We don't think that the world is in a spinning chaos, flying violently out of control, and that we have no direction to where we're going. Christians, totally different perspective on world events. We see a God who's utterly in control, who will have justice. Sometimes it takes time for different injustices to come to, to their just end, as in this case, where it took Abimelech three years for then God to then bring in his spirit to sow division. But behind the real world events that we live in, we serve a God who's in control and bringing about his justice as he points us towards the final justice that will come. Now, I'm guessing there aren't too many Abimelechs in this room, maniacal leaders who are trying to kill their own people. Hopefully not. If that's you in this room today, there's grace for you. There's grace for you. Come find me, preferably Kenson after service, and Kenson will spend plenty of time with you with your confession. Abimelech perverted justice by flipping it upside down. And he was guilty, found guilty, and God brought justice on him. But there are other ways of being guilty of injustice. There are other ways of perverting justice. And God finds guilt in those who pervert justice in other ways as well. I'm convicted by Ezekiel, the prophet. Perhaps you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God brought total judgment on an entire city because of the sins of that city. And the prophet Ezekiel reveals why God brought that judgment. Let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. This will come up behind me. This verse preaches itself. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Hear that. Excess of food. Prosperous ease. But did not aid the poor and the needy. 
I'm just going to let that sit up there for a second and let that preach to each and every person in this room. I think one of the reasons we don't do justice, one of the reasons we as a people, as a body, we have our prophets, we have our leaders who have convictions and are out there fighting good fights. Each and every person. But one of the reasons the church, the body of Christ, that's each and every person in this room, often is so slow to step into caring for the poor and the needy, that's doing justice, for being guilty of the same sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were found guilty for because they failed to act justly. One of the reasons the church does this, first and foremost, I think, is because we're afraid to be labeled a radical. I think for a lot of us, we're afraid to put a stake in the ground and say, you know what, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong according to God's word, and I'm going to fight for it. And the reality is, is that you may be labeled a radical. But for the Christian, we would much rather be labeled a radical than be lukewarm and spit out, wouldn't we? All across our city, all across our nation, the time that we live in are injustices that are occurring in ways that when we start digging into them, it should blow our mind and our hearts open. Let me give you a short list. Sometimes we don't even blink an eye at some of this stuff. Corruption of government funds to often benefit benefit wealthier districts over districts that have less funds and assets and ability to give. A for-profit prison system that incarcerates black men and women to a greater degree than white men and women for the exact same crimes, thereby furthering generations of fatherlessness within the African-American community. If you want a good book on that particular topic, I recommend the new Jim Crow. We should be angry about that. Many imprisoned who are falsely accused and unable to hire a helpful attorney. 60 million children whose lives have been taken since abortion was made legal through Roe v. Wade. Predatory lending. Historical redlining. Food deserts. Hospital deserts in our city where where some of the most at-risk neighborhoods where the most violence occurs are actually the furthest distance from the hospitals because the hospitals are located in our city in the wealthiest neighborhoods. Harassment of immigrants, human trafficking, neglect of the elderly and widows, the list could go on. There is no shortage of injustices that are occurring under our watch, God's people's watch today. But you know, I don't think it's just the fear of being labeled a radical that stops us from getting involved. I don't think that's it. I think there's something more profound. For us to have so much overwhelming direction from God, so many pieces of God's heart revealed to us, that all, and for us to stand, bends towards caring for the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable among us, and for us to stand back in our prosperous ease and not take care of the poor and needy among us, I think it's more than a label fear. I think for a lot of us, we think of doing justice from underneath the premise of guilt rather than from underneath the premise of grace. See, guilt stands and breathes down your neck. And it says you're not doing enough. You should be more courageous. You should be more bold. You should move into tougher neighborhoods. 
You should be doing all these things. You have so much. They have so little. You should be giving more. You should be going on more trips. You should be sacrificing more money. Guilt is a motivation, but it's not the biblical motivation. Every other religion in the world uses guilt as a motivation to push their people to do justice, to seek righteousness. That's the hallmark of Islam. Islam tells you to earn merit by doing justice, by giving a certain amount. And if you start to fall behind the eight ball, well, you better start racking up some charitable points, some brownie points with God, because guilt's weighing down on you. Every other religion has a guilt-based form of justice, oftentimes even from the pulpit. I hear many sermons which ultimately are a guilt-based sermon towards doing justice. you got to do more. Come on, church, rally it up. Let's go. Let's get out there. This is ultimately not how the Christian thinks about doing justice. We operate from a position of grace. Guilt cannot actually motivate the heart. Only grace can enter into a person's heart and change the way we think about justice and injustice around us. See, guilt does justice by saying, I am strong, they are weak, therefore it's my duty to help those who are weaker than me. But grace first and foremost levels the playing field. Grace says, I am the weakest among us. I am the poorest and most needy among us. I have nothing to offer. I'm totally bankrupt before the God of the universe. What do I have to offer? Nothing. I bring nothing good. My most charitable works, the most love, all the overseas trips I've ever gone on, the years I've spent overseas, those are just filthy rags before the God of the universe because I'm so full of selfish ambition that everything good I've ever raised, someone can because of my selfish flesh. But by God's grace, someone came to me in the midst of my affliction. Jesus moved towards me when I was unworthy and unable to step out of my brokenness. When I couldn't move forward because I was stuck in cycles of brokenness and inability to get out of it, Jesus came to me and offered me grace upon grace and lavished heaven on my shoulders. See, grace equalizes the playing field. Grace doesn't stand as strong saying, how do I help the weak? Grace says, I am weak. How do I love my brother the way I've been loved by Jesus? Guilt says, says, the book of James says, you ought to take care of the orphan among you. And it stands here and it it says, this we should be doing more of, church. you got to open your homes. There are so many orphans in our city. This is something we need to be doing. Grace, first and foremost, equalizes the playing field. It says, I am an orphan before the God of the universe. Scripturally, that's the language that's used. I I disregarded God's commands. I separated myself from my heavenly Father. And therefore, because of my sin, I'm an orphan. I know what it's like to be an orphan. I know what it's like to not have any hope. I know what it's like to be stuck and not have a heavenly Father to be my comforter. To be stuck in cycles that I can't get out of because I've got no direction because the Father's words aren't guiding me and I'm going down paths that aren't good for anybody around me nor for myself. I know what it's like to not have the sure foundation of a heavenly family and in the midst of my being an orphan, a heavenly Father moved towards me 
And through Jesus, he ransomed this orphan out of fatherlessness and gave me a heavenly father through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Grace equalizes the playing field. It's not we've got to do more because we're strong and they're weak. It's that I am an orphan and I have the opportunity to love my brother the way Jesus has loved me. Guilt can never motivate the heart. Grace changes your foundation. It changes your lens of the world by how you see yourself when you wake up in the morning. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. This is grace that we have received what we have not earned and that someone has stepped into our mire and muck when we couldn't get out of it on our own. Grace identifies as family with the broken and the hurting among us. And when you identify with the broken, the hurting, the needy, and the vulnerable among you, Jesus tells us in the New Testament that you're identifying with him. When you identify with the broken among you, Jesus says you're identifying with him. Let me read to you from Matthew 25. You may remember this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking about that beautiful, glorious day that's going to come when Jesus restores all things and brings about total justice. And in that day, he's going to look at those who served him and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And here's his words he's going to say. I was hungry. Jesus' words. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will come to him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king, will look you in your eyes face to face because he will have returned and will be in the process of setting all things right and he'll look you in your eyes and he'll say these beautiful words, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is pulling back the spiritual curtains behind the real world events of what we live in and he's showing us how it works behind the scenes. As you do to the least of these, you have done unto me. Jesus is God incarnate and all the fullness, the two prongs of justice are put on beautiful, vivid display in his life, death, and resurrection. All the laws of God that bend towards the weak, the needy, the vulnerable, all those beautiful laws that were to dictate God's people, they are put on beautiful display in the life and the death of Jesus. Jesus first identified with the weak and the vulnerable, did he not? Jesus became poor for our sake. He took on poverty. Remember he was laid in a feeding trough? When his parents went to dedicate him at the temple, they only had the poverty offering to give. It was two pigeons. They couldn't afford anything more. He was living and growing up in poverty. Jesus was hunted by Herod at his birth. He had no place to call his home and no pillow to lay his head on. Jesus was mocked as fatherless. Do you remember Jesus, the divine, miraculous birth of Jesus? Well, as he grew up, those in power in the town where he was from, they used to mock him as fatherless because Joseph and Mary weren't married when they had birth with him. 
They didn't know that God had divinely made that birth possible, but he was mocked as fatherless. Jesus was tried as a criminal, though he was innocent, and he was found guilty for crimes he didn't commit and forced to pay the penalty for it. Jesus was stripped, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was spit upon, he was treated as if he had no value, yet he was the most valuable person that has ever existed before time even existed. Yet it didn't matter to those who were persecuting him. Jesus was dragged up Calvary's hill, driven through with spikes to a crucifix, crucifix and mocked as he bled. Jesus identified with the poor, the weak, the needy, and the vulnerable. And then the other side of justice as well, he lives out in perfection. All the wrongs, all the sins of humanity come down to bear the full weight of justice on, God's, on Jesus' shoulders. The language we use for what Jesus accomplished on the cross is a substitute. All the sins from Cain, when he shed Abel's blood, up through now, bearing down on one man's shoulders the just penalty for the corruption of God's people. God holding every single person accountable for the guilt that they have, for the sins they've committed, even for the sins they failed to do by acting justly to care for the weak and the needy. All bearing down on one person as a substitute for you and for me. This is God's law for justice put on beautiful, vivid display. Do you know the justice of God that has been made available to you in Jesus Christ? As we think as a church how we, how we live this out, God forbid Jesus returns and we get caught guilty of the same sins as, as Sodom. Living in prosperous ease. While the poor, the weak, the neater, and the vulnerable are struggling as our neighbors. God forbid Jesus returns and find us living in prosperous ease. As those whom he has commanded us to live. Telling us our brothers and our own spiritual condition to be like them. God forbid we're found guilty of the same sins. This will look different for everyone here in this room. The way that each of us are called to participate in justice is different and unique to each one of your stories. Some in this room are hurting today. And you're in here today screaming, does anyone know my story? Do you know the injustices I've faced? And what you should find in a community like this is a group of people that are brothers and sisters who have created margin in their life. Margin of time and margin of resources and money and margin of money and margin in their homes and margin with their families to, to bring you in and to wrap their love around you and say, let me show you the love of the God of the Bible and the love of his people. Come on in, your family. Some of you, some of you need to begin by applying the law of gleanings in your life, by creating that margin. Some of us have different idols in our life. We're pursuing money and career so hard. we got no margin in our life to do anything, to care for anybody. Some of you don't know anybody that's hurting. And if that's the case, I want to appeal to Scripture and say, we're Christians. We need to be involved in broken people's lives. And if you don't know anyone that's hurting, something about your life needs to change. You need to get around some different people and change the places you hang out. We're Christians. We get in the nooks and the crannies of the city. 
Some of you have vast insights of knowledge of the issues that I talked and brought up today. You know those issues way better than I do. And you've been storing knowledge and, and policy thoughts in your mind many times over. And you know how to engage in conversation on these issues till the middle of the night, but you've never done anything about it. If you're a Christian, I, I, I want to charge you as, as brothers who have received grace operating underneath the gospel of grace, put that knowledge into action. Be an activist. Have a voice. Talk about it. Create nonprofits. Step into the hurting places. Be the one guy that goes. Be the one guy that has a conversation. Stick out like a sore thumb. Watch the church come around you. Some will be called to be safe families and foster parents and adoptive parents. Some will be called to start Bible studies in prisons, to speak educatedly in our society about the, the rights of the unborn, to open your home to strangers, to run races overseas for clean water, to step into public policy change, to educate others on broken systems and corruption, to care well for your parents in their later years. For each person, it's going to look different. But as those who have received grace, who operate under the love and the grace of Christ, it is our grace to share as well. As we close this, I want to put a prayer up that Kenson shared with me this week. He found it in a devotional he was reading, and I think it summarizes well what many of us need to pray. And so I'm going to give you a moment of silence right now to read the something on the screen behind me, and perhaps you might, with courage and boldness, Pray something like the words that are on the screen behind me.